instead of going straight down, I started actually stepping over to the right with my front points in the ice. So I was actually putting myself in a pendulum situation if I lost my footing. And sure enough, I lost my footing and I pendulumed over and smacked right into the ice. And he thought I was going to die. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. So there's this new backpacking food company called Peak Refuel. And honestly, I, I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip. Y'all, it was literally the best backpacking food I've ever had in my life. I was so impressed by them that I wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners. So if you keep listening to the episode, I'll tell you how to save 20% off an order with them. But until then, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. I've got a good one for you guys today. It's Grace McDonald. If you guys don't know Grace, she's from Toronto, Canada, and she's an attorney-turned-mountain climber. And instead of trying to hack an intro for her, I'm going to let her tell you all about how she got into mountain climbing and why she turned away from the uh, the rigors of, of law to go do something so cool. So for starters, Grace, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So yeah, let's jump in. I mentioned you being an attorney. So do me a favor and tell our audience about how it is you started mountain climbing and, and how your focus ended up growing to mountain climbing and kind of away from your standard day job. Yeah, so I um, I, I was originally uh, into journalism uh, and quickly realized that didn't pay much money. So I went back to school and with the sole purpose of making money and decided that law would be the right way to do that. Uh, and then about seven years into law, um, with money being my main focus, I quickly discovered I was unhappy, which is tends to be what, what happens when you do, uh, something just for money. Uh, and I made, I made a bunch of money. That was great. But, uh, my whole life was basically dedicated to, to law and not in like, uh, I got home at nine o'clock at night way. Like I got home at three o'clock in the morning way. And then my Blackberry would buzz at around four 30 in the morning and I'd be back into the office. And this was a very regular occurrence. I worked in corporate finance, um, dealing with public company stock offerings and takeover bids and all very exciting stuff. Um, but I had no life outside of law. And I was never a person who wanted my whole life to be dedicated to uh, to an office. So over the course, it took me about four years, I think, to actually uh, pull the trigger and quit. It was a big decision uh, to decide that I no longer wanted to do this. The assumption was, though, that I would kind of take a year off um, and then maybe go back into some form of law, but uh, nothing like what I was doing in terms of working for a law firm or working for a company. And I pulled the trigger, I think, in 2010 and decided immediately I'd, I'd had a goals list um, kind of h- hanging over my, my bed or in my bedroom where, you know, when we moved, I would move it to different locations. But one of the things on that list was to go to Everest Base Camp. And I don't know why. I mean, I think I know why. I think because I had always had National Geographics as a kid. I had seen Mount Everest on National Geographics and decided that I wanted to see that with my own eyes. I had no intention of climbing uh, Mount Everest, but I still thought it'd 
be a great trip to go to Nepal and do the, the trek up to base camp and see it. So in 2010, when I left my job, I think it was maybe midsummer, I decided in the fall I was going to go over to Nepal and I was going to see Mount Everest. But I had also decided at that point, because I was, I was a pretty outdoorsy person and a very active person and definitely into hiking. And I thought that, well, I'm probably going to see people over there doing some really cool stuff like climbing. And while I have no intention of doing anything epic, why don't I go and like learn how to climb? That Surely that must be something I can do when I go over to Nepal. So I kind of did a little search and found it that, yeah, I could take like three week trip and, and learn like the basics of mountaineering uh, and climb a, a 6,000 meter peak. So I signed up to do that and went over and I was joined by three uh, young guys for, who worked for Google in San Francisco and an Irish guy. And the five of us all went off with um, uh, a Sherpa leader and a couple of supporting Sherpas. And we went to Lobuche East, which is uh, not far from Lobuche, uh, a sort of two villages before Everest Base Camp. And we spent, you know, uh, about a week doing some basic, you know, here's how to climb fixed lines. Here's what a Jumar is. Um, here's some basic knots. Uh, here's how to walk in crampons. Here's how to self-arrest. Um, here's how to rope up and walk on a glacier. Uh, and then we went off and went for the summit of Lobo So this is just over 6,000 meters. And I think I hyperventilated about 200 meters from the top. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, it was terrible. I, I, I felt I thought I was going to die. I, I think I was just really hungry and I was probably walking too fast. But, you know, our, our Sherpa guide was like, what's wrong with you? And uh, he's like, eat. He's just like, I remember he shoved a, a, a goo gel in my mouth. And I absolutely hate those things. But um, it did the trick. You know, I think it required me to breathe and uh, and. <laughs> and then got some calories into me and uh and then he's like okay let's go and finish this and so I, I stood up and I went and finished it and that sounds really horrible but the truth is, is I went and I stood on top of Lobuche East and by that point you know I'd completely fallen in love uh with with this climbing thing so uh I don't know I don't know what it certainly wasn't when I was having a goo shoved in my mouth <laughs> may have been when I stepped onto the top of Lobuche East and, you know, saw the view and, and realized that I had worked through, you know, uh, a challenge. Uh, and it was absolutely stunning. It was an absolutely perfect day up there. You couldn't have asked for, for better views. And it was a great little group and, and we'd all gotten on so well. And then we, you know, came down and had the chance to walk over to Everest Base Camp, um, which by that point, wasn't really even necessary because the view from Lobuche East is, is, is so stunning. But, you know, completed the journey and then went home. And, and in, in that process, that very short three week process, I had fallen in love with, um, with climbing, uh, or mountaineering. And so I came home and immediately, I immediately knew I wanted to go and do something else. And I, I started to learn more and more about, I mean, I was a total novice. I didn't even understand this concept of like 8,000 meter peaks and, and I still had no intention Absolutely zero intention of climbing Mount Everest. Still no intention after that. <laughs> <clears throat> no, absolutely not. Um, but I'm very methodical about how I, you know, work towards goals. Um, and I had a sense even then that Everest was not the kind of thing you just rush into. Um, 
And for me, part of my enjoyment of anything I take on um, is the process of, of learning and getting better at something. So I would never be someone who kind of want to rush, wants to rush to the to the end goal. Um, so I knew I wanted to do uh, do something else, and I thought, okay, well the next step should be if I'd done six thousand meters and altitude wise I felt okay. I clearly need to figure out my pacing and figure out eating, but let's try out seven thousand meters. Um, and logically, it seemed to me that Aconcagua, being a non technical mountain. Um, and also it was an opportunity to go to see a part of the world I hadn't been to. So I was going to go down to Argentina to climb Aconcagua and went down there, uh, didn't summit, got to about 6,600, I think. So I, I remember being like really happy because I just wanted to go and see more altitude and I didn't, I didn't have a sense of, um, needing summits in the, in the, in my mind at that point. Um, I know other people on that trip were like really devastated they hadn't summited. But for me, I, I already knew on that trip that this was like a long-term thing for me. I wasn't just going to like pop out now and then to climb a mountain. I was going to be climbing mountains for the rest of my life. Whether or not I went back to work, climbing mountains was going to have to be something that happened on a regular um, basis for me. So I was just really happy that I'd like upped my, uh, my altitude, uh, goal. So I can't, and it, it would have been great to summit, but I was still really excited because it was like, okay, I did six and now I had like six, six and okay, maybe I can, maybe I can try something bigger. <clears throat> and, uh, we, interesting. I, I, I did go back to Aconcagua years later. And I remember when we turned around on that first time, I wasn't sure the guide was right about turning us around because he thought we were too slow. And years later, when I went back, I realized he was entirely right. And we still had like a huge amount of ground to cover and we wouldn't have made it in any reasonable time. But um, so went back home. This was this would have been so at the end of 2010. I'd gone on Lobuche East and then in early uh, 2011, like January, I think I'd, I'd gone on Aconcagua and then I had decided, OK, because at this time it was still like, OK, I'm on my year off. I thought I was going to go back to work like in a year. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go try to climb my first 8,000 meter peak. And I'm going to do that in the spring. And the, the, the standard thinking about first 8,000 meter peaks, certainly at that time was for you. Um, at that time, Manaslu was not, uh, considered a beginner 8,000 meter peak. So, and, and on top of it, I was going to get to go see Tibet, which I thought was, was very cool. Right. And so it would have been, I'm going to say March, April, uh, and I went to went back to Nepal and got on a bus to go to Choyu and see how 8,000 meters was. And I was going to use oxygen. And I ended up in this wonderful group of people. I mean, all pretty much all, I think, trying out their first 8,000 meter peak. That was sort of the standard fare then that anybody on Choyu was kind of trying out their first 8,000 meter peak. So this great Absolutely great guide, uh, Max. And then we had this great group of just silly, wonderful, relaxed people. Um, and I also met this girl, Violetta, on that trip, who ended up becoming a really long-term friend of mine, and I ended up climbing other mountains with her. We were the only two girls on it. And uh, it was, I mean, it was a pretty incredible trip because I summited, which was fantastic. Uh, actually, the only two people that summited were me and Violetta with Max, uh, so it was this girl power uh, a moment. It wasn't easy. 
Uh, it absolutely wasn't easy. We still look back on, on some moments, you know, when we were in camp two trying to acclimatize and we were just absolutely done in. I mean, we, I think we were doing better than everybody else, but we could still barely find the energy in ourselves to, you know, boil water and eat. And, and when it came time to kind of pack up and go back down, I remember we were trying to find every excuse to not, to not do it, but, um, but we worked through it. And then we, you know, went back up for the, the summit push and, I, on the summit push, Violetta wasn't using oxygen, so I, I and but I was, you know, almost doing cartwheels because I was on oxygen. I felt so great, and it was on that trip. So I never I had also never uh, sort of been exposed to this thinking of using oxygen or not using oxygen, and and the sort of um, bravado behind that and purity concept of you know climbing with or without oxygen. So that was my first exposure to that. And Violetta, being Polish, um, was very committed to a certain style of climbing. But that was also when I realized that um, oxygen is awesome and you'll be really happy if you climb with oxygen. And if you don't, you're going to be really, really miserable. <laughs> and I remember coming down from the summit and she just the look on her face till this day makes me laugh. And we had to lie to her because she was like, it's not it's not far, is it? She's like 45 minutes. And we're like, yeah, 45 minutes. And it was absolutely at least three hours still. <laughs> <laughs> But there was no way because the look on her face was just that it, she, she was not happy. She was not a happy camper at all. A little bit of what you know, what you don't know won't hurt you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, she, and she went on. But unfortunately, so that was one of the things I learned on that mountain. But I, I also learned a really other um, potentially deadly lesson on that mountain because um, it had been a really cloudy morning. Um, so when I actually stood on that summit, one of the great things about standing on the summit of Choi, you're just supposed to like get to the summit and then directly across in front of you is Mount Everest. And then you have this view of all these other wonderful mountains. Of course, there was so much cloud that I just had a view of like complete cloud surrounding surrounding me. But it was a weird cloud because it was like the sun was out, but the but the sky was filled with these big puffy clouds that were just sitting really low. And when I was climbing... I remember my oxygen mask, and it was one of these like old or sort of Russian style oxygen masks. It was quite big for my face, and it was pushing my glacier glasses up just a little bit. So there was a little, little gap between you know my, my face and the and 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 my uh, and the goggles. So I thought, and I knew it, but I had thought to myself, being a newbie and such, that um, well, the sun's not even up yet, really. Like it's not like it's shining on me. Plus, it's really cloudy out, and so no big deal you know did the whole climb this way then i get up onto the summit and we stayed it was it was it was quite warm because of that cloud cover so we actually sat up there for 45 minutes and i took my glasses off and max didn't even really notice that i'd done that and so i have all these pictures of me on the summit without my glasses on and sure enough we came down to to the high camp and then moved back down to um, to Camp 2. And that night at around... So everybody else had only come back down to the high camp. So it was just me and Max down in Camp 2. And at around... The sun had set. We'd eaten. We'd had we'd had, had drinks. And, and, and I started scratching my eyes. And it was dark. So it was completely dark in the tent. We were supposed to be sleeping. And I just like, started getting up and really scratching and scratching my eyes. And... And Max was like, what's up? And I said, there's something wrong with my eyes. And you know, he just said, oh, you're dehydrated. And he always said that, like whenever anything was wrong, you're dehydrated, you just need to drink, which is usually the first thing you should always do when something's wrong. But I, I was 
certain that no, 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 Max, there's seriously, there's something wrong with my eyes. And, um, he said, okay, well just let me get my headlamp and fumbles around in the tent says, okay, sit up. And he clicks on the light and he just starts laughing <laughs> and he goes, Oh, I don't know what I can say. I don't know what words I can use, but you can imagine. He said, you are blank. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this and is I not said, an issue of snow blindness <laughs> i said what do you mean he goes you're not going to be able to see in the morning and it really hurt when he had turned on the light um he goes by the morning you're not gonna be able to see <clears throat> and i said great that's awesome and he goes but don't i need you to like just chill out and uh not worry about it because we can't change anything with that and i need you to, to sleep and he put some ointment in my eye and uh and explained look this is not good, but you know, I'll, I'm going to get you out of here. Uh, but we need to wait till the morning to do anything about this. And so he kind of wrapped my my eyes up, and and um, you know, in the morning I couldn't see anything, and I couldn't take any light on any light meeting my eyes. So we needed to actually wrap them with more sort of uh, you know headbands and things like that to keep all the light out from them. And you oh, know, so sure it enough, was snow blindness. You were it was it was by the, it wow. absolutely was snow blindness. Yes, and um, and it and it went on for two days. Yeah, two days before I could actually even start trying to see hmm. anything with wow. with glasses on. But we were we needed to, to get off this mountain. We had a lot uh, of a lot of ground to cover, and I could couldn't see a thing and so of course max is responsible for more than just me and everybody else starts coming down from the high camp that morning and funny enough violetta comes down and, and she comes right over to the tent that we're in and she goes max i need to see you and he goes what's up and she says i have frostbite on my finger and he goes yeah well she's blind so keep on walking <laughs> <laughs> we got bigger fish to fry right now <laughs> oh man and she's like no um and and so of course i mean you can imagine the issues that one goes through when suddenly they find themselves unexpectedly blind on a mountain i needed oh, to go yeah. to the washroom and i had nothing but men around me and i was blind so the minute she got down there i said you know hey before you before you leave i need you to take me somewhere you and help me, me you know <laughs> <laughs> help me figure out how to do this so um so she kindly did that and, and you know if our if our friendship had not been cemented uh, um before that certainly was at that point uh so so the point of that at that point it was okay everybody get their stuff pack up uh sherpas take as much as you can and everybody go ahead and just get off this mountain go all the way to base camp i'm gonna get i'm gonna stay with grace uh and we need i'm gonna get her off this mountain now somewhere somewhere in that i think the sherpas misunderstood exactly how far max expected to get me off this mountain because we started we started we thought it might work if he attached like a short rope to me, but it didn't really work because I couldn't tell when he was kind of heading left or right. Uh, so we ended up taking a trekking pole and, and almost he would kind of shake, he would hold one and I'd hold the other and he would shake it. And if he was going to the right, he'd shake it to the right or going to the left, shake it to the left. Um, and that worked really well. And that was pretty great on, on the more moderate terrain where we just had snow to walk through. So I just kind of kept picking up my feet high so I didn't, you know, hit any snow or anything. We were covering ground pretty well. The, the first major obstacle was there's this thing called uh, the ice wall. Um, in the fall, there's so much snow that it tends to be like uh, steps, but in the spring, it's very icy and it can be um, quite steep. And so we actually had to repel off that because it was the springtime. Of course, I'm blind, so I'm not very good at that point. 
point at, you know, attaching myself in for repel. So he had to sort that out and he repelled, he hooked me in and left a safety clip on an anchor. And basically I was hooked in dangling on this line and I had my hand on this one clip that I would unclip when he yelled. And then I would repel down blindly. And I knew it was just a straight rappel down. And then he would meet me at the bottom of that rappel and, and uh, click me into another rope that I could then traverse over on. Pretty simple. And, and at this point, I mean, this would have freaked a lot of people out, I think. But I very much trusted that Max could get me out of this. All I had to do was trust him and that freaking out wasn't going to sort of solve anything. Right, here. right. Um, so it was actually incredibly – it was an incredibly calm walk down for me. I think it was an incredibly stressful walk down for Max. Um, and I didn't really appreciate that during it. Um, he was keeping his cool very well. But I, looking back on all of this, uh, it was a pretty insane thing that he had to do. Because he was also trusting me to do the rappel on my own. Um, and so he yelled to me. But he was slightly over to the right. And I have a hearing problem. Uh, I I'm, I'm, have some deafness in my right ear. And instead of going straight down, I started actually stepping over to the right with my front points in the ice. So I was actually putting myself in a pendulum situation if I lost my footing as I was going down. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I lost my footing and I pendulumed <laughs> over and smacked right into the ice. And he thought I was going to die at that point. Oh, bet. Uh, and so he's watching me pendulum over. He thought I was going to let go of the rope and just slide down to the bottom and, and be dead. And uh, I pendulumed over and I hit the ice and I just started laughing and he was like I can't believe he started yelling like I can't believe you're laughing right now. you have to be the craziest <laughs> client I've ever had in my life <laughs> but I'm really glad you're okay you're a blind woman dangling from a rope smacking no, he was like, I was sure like a lawyer from Canada she's definitely going to at least be crying like right. there's no question about this. <laughs> That's he's like you're, you're insane and I'm like well it's kind of funny. And what else am I going to do? Uh, so I, I ended up coming down to him and he got me through the rest of it. Um, and we carried on walking and we made it down to camp one, but this had taken us most of the day because some bad weather had moved in and some snow had started piling up. Unfortunately, the Sherpas on our team had thought he was going to come all the way down to base camp. So they cleared out everything. We had no tents. Oh, we no. had no stoves. We had nothing. Okay. <laughs> So Max was a little mad, shall we say. He also couldn't reach them on the radio from Camp One. Bring and, my stuff back up. <laughs> you know, so everything was going everything was going terribly wrong, and there was no way. I mean, we were this was this was this was tiring for me, and I can only imagine on a mental and physical level for him how exhausting it was. I'm sure. Luckily, there was one other team left on the mountain. There was a Dutch team, and they had a very small tent, uh, like one of those small two man tents. In, in camp one and and we knew they wouldn't mind if we used it given given the circumstances <clears throat> they were on their summit push the next day so they were up higher so we got in there but of course keep in mind we have no stove we have no food <laughs> and we're exhausted and we've got a big day ahead of us the next day but we did have one can of coke in that tent and we spent the night sharing that can of coke and coke had never tasted so good <laughs> i mean i don't say. drink that stuff but that night it was i mean it was probably the per most perfect thing we could have if we had nothing i'm sure yeah and we woke up the next morning and continued on down but that's actually where things got really difficult because choyu um becomes quite rocky down lower and it starts with like 
okay, Grace is a rock on your left. Okay, Grace is a rock on your right. And then and it becomes rock everywhere. Grace is just rock everywhere. So I actually started getting scared at that point that I was going to trip and like break an arm or break a leg because um, there's only so much you can do walking a blind person through a boulder field. Um, but we did it. It just took a long time. And then eventually we got down onto sort of the glacier, the glacier and onto the trail on the glacier. And sure enough, we ran into one of uh, our Sherpas who was coming back up in the morning. And, uh, and then there's all these Tibetan porters uh, around and they, they heard about the blind girl coming down the mountain. So they came out to offer, of course, for a price, a very steep price. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay it. I'll pay it <laughs> to, to piggyback me um, uh, into advanced base camp, um, and and I said, look, whatever it costs. And they want. It was funny because they wanted the money right then and there. And we're standing in the middle of a glacier, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't happen to have my wallet. On yeah, you point right me now. to the ATM, and I'll <laughs> but, get your cash for you. <laughs> yeah. So they they piggybacked me uh, back into advanced base camp and it was cute because they there were two of them and they they took turns and i i knew which one i had me based on the smell of their hair <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they dropped me twice uh and they thought it was very funny and every time they dropped me i took ten dollars off <laughs> <Nice. laughs> <laughs> they didn't think that was funny uh but it was cute because they, they carried me the way they would carry loads so they like took a ro rope around their forehead and then ran that rope under my butt and um it was uh, it was it was a really interesting interesting setup. But they wanted to like take as much off of me as possible. So they were like, okay, take her jacket off, then take her boots off, then what more can we take off? <laughs> this is like, not a game, okay, guys. I'm not gonna get naked. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure where you're going. Um, yeah, no. So we got back into advanced base camp, and then it was still it was a really uh, even rockier walk down to where we could basically get into um, a motor vehicle, and the team was down in that motor vehicle vehicle waiting to to leave the mountains so we so a bunch more of tibetan porters showed up and they all wanted in on the action so i had i had easily 10 different people taking turns piggybacking me um down this trail to uh to uh to the car there was a van down there and one of them was a woman actually who, who took me on the took me on her back so wow. uh, we got me out of there and then within um 24 hours after that, I could like sit in a room that had no lights on and look out into a hallway with light, but I needed my sunglasses on to do that. Yeah, it was, uh, it took, it took a while, but it comes back. And that was my lesson in wearing sunglasses on a mountain. So like I said before, Peak Refuel is a new company making dehydrated backpacking food, hunting food, whatever you want to use the meals for. But they spent over two years researching the industry and coming up with the absolute perfect recipes for your adventure needs. The guys on my last trip could not believe that it was dehydrated meals. Their chicken Alfredo, I'm not kidding y'all, it tastes like it came out of a daggum restaurant. And it only took just over a cup of water, so every meal was just super creamy filling and just tasted great. And the pictures that they have on the packages are literally pictures of the food. It's not some stock image of people that never been camping a day in their life. And also, if you're a listener of the Adventure Sports Podcast, at checkout, type in ASP20 to get 20% off an order. And there are no limits to how many people can use that, and there is no expiration date on that code. Also, you get free shipping with orders over $49. So go to peakrefuel.com to learn more. How much do they prepare you in training for that? 
Uh, you know, I mean, it's to, to prepare you for, you can't really prepare for snow blindness. The way you should really prepare for snow blindness is by not getting it and not being an idiot and well, keeping that's your I sunglasses mean. on, don't, right? Don't, yeah. Don't they stress that, you know, this is, this happens quickly and you yeah. don't know what's happening until it's done with. I mean, that's why I yeah, interviewed sure. Brian Dickinson. I don't know if you know him uh, yeah. in his story, yeah. but he wrote a book about it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. same thing. Just, he didn't take his glasses off up there just to look around. He had, uh, taken mm -hmm. his goggles off for a second, put them on his arm and yeah. lost them. They basically, you know, rolled down the, oh. the down the, the side of Everest and Sherpas yes. had caught it. Well, they brought it back up to him. The inner um, lining, the oh. inner lens was cracked. So he had to remove it. But what he didn't realize was that that was basically, that was, that was half of the 50, yeah, 50% of his effective uh, sun blocking. Mm -hmm. And that's why he got it. But it just makes me wonder. It's like you keep hearing this, and don't people just drill this into your head that look, you know, this is going to be very, very difficult to get back down if you happen to to get this. Yeah, I mean, they do. So, I mean, I don't know that they drill it into your head, right? I mean, then there's there's because I think it's you're supposed to wear your sunglasses. They will tell you like make sure there's no space, like you have to have all the space covered and all that. But you know what? What you don't what you don't realize is, you know, first of all, you're up high. You're not entirely thinking straight. Number right, two, right. you know, making sure there's no space is like extra work. And so whenever there's extra work going on and you're anywhere above 7,000 meters, you try to come up with reasons as to why you don't have to do that, <laughs> right. you know? And so I came up with the reason of, oh, you know, it's cloudy. I didn't, I didn't like, obviously UV rays aren't just about the sun being out, right. you know, <laughs> there's UV rays out there that are reflecting off the snow and that are going to get my eyes. I know that, but in the moment I was like, Oh, there's cloud out there. So no big deal. Like it's just, you, you make these excuses. And then, yep. and by that point, and then when you're up on the summit, like, you know, it was my first 8,000 meter summit. I was like super happy. Um, I was on oxygen. I was on top of the world. Kind of I'm going to take and this in, <laughs> you know, and then you, you just like, I just took them off and, and you know, cause they, you know, they also, they fog up often. And, and, and so there's all sorts of things going on that make you want to make life easier on yourself. And through trying to make life easier on yourself, you can end up snow blind. Um, and I definitely learned the hard way on that one. I was really, I think the more I, the, the further I get away from that, that experience, the more I realize how serious it was because the more uh, difficult climbs that I've been on, um, it made me realize that, you know, on a different mountain that would have gone really wrong. Or if I was a different person, that would have gone really wrong. You know, um, if I hadn't for some reason transitioned and just calm, cool and collected, that sure. could have been a really difficult situation. Um, so anyway, now I'm, now I'm the, the first person telling everyone to put their sunglasses on uh, <laughs> all the time, you know, and, and sunscreen too and all that. But, um, uh, that'll, that'll teach you. And then I, you know, I tell them, I tell them that story and, and, uh, and how serious it really can be getting someone off a mountain. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, you, you spend this time preparing to climb and what you're preparing for is the ascent, you know, the acclimatization yeah. and to the exertion of the uh, ascent to get up there. You're not preparing to come down the mountain blind. It's not something that no. really crosses your mind and you can't really prepare for it. So you end up in a, in a world of hurt by comparison you know, yeah, or something like that. So, and it's, it's, a, it's stupid. It's a stupid situation to let yourself get into. Um, and I don't blame anybody. I don't blame Max. It was, that was entirely, uh, you know, he felt like, God, I should have seen that. 
mm-hmm. and uh, I should have noted it and I, and that should never have happened. But it's like, you know, I mean, most of that damage probably happened while I was climbing with that little gap, you know, between right. the oxygen mask as opposed to the time up on the summit. So it's, and that's, that's on me. Yeah. And to but, your you point, know, I'll you're never up there. Do it again. Yeah, and you're thinking about a lot of different things. It's not just your your eyewear that you're thinking. You have a million things that you have to think about yeah. while you're up there, and he does too. Yeah. And he's you know thinking about it for other people too. So yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. can't pin it on anybody. It's just something that you uh, you you take a chance by doing these kind of things, and you, know, you mm-hmm. pulled through it, and now you have a good story yeah. to tell. <laughs> but if you mess up, and I you know I actually had this discussion with somebody years later on. The- the north side of Everest who, you know, chose to do something really silly um, with respect to their eyewear and ended up being okay, but didn't factor in the cost that that would have had for the overall team in terms of other people. Like, yeah, it was just your eyes and you getting damaged. But if that happened, who, who was going to take you down? Right. Do you think it would have just been you and your Sherpa doing that? No, it probably would have been you and your Sherpa and my Sherpa and her Sherpa and his Sherpa. And what if it was our summit push? and we didn't get our Sherpas, then that's it for all of us because you decided that's what you wanted to do. You didn't want to wear proper eyewear that day. So I think that's the, that's ultimately the lesson is we we have to take care of ourselves, and that's not just to take care of ourselves. It's because we also have a responsibility to the team. What if somebody else had been more seriously injured, you know? Oh, yeah. On, on the team. Like what if somebody had had cerebral edema and I became a secondary issue yeah you know, that's it was, a good it was, point it, yeah and you have to prepare i mean you know people going up in a group have to prepare to be you know have the uh the ascent turned around because of somebody mm-hmm. you know, having an issue you mm-hmm. have to be you know mm-hmm. of the same mind saying look if somebody's mm-hmm. got an issue we all get together and get this person down so be prepared mm-hmm. that we may not make it it may not be because of your fault but mm-hmm. you know and like you said you got to be prepared as the the person going up thinking whatever I do can affect the rest of the group. So it's all part exactly. of the sport for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was a little yeah. surprised at the, um, you know, at the, how you got into it. You said it was about three weeks. Um, yeah. I guess in my mind, I'm not a big climber, you know, before the interview we were talking and I've done a, a few yeah. 14ers, but you know, nothing, nothing more. Um, but in my mind, I would think, oh, if I'm going to, if I have aspirations of, of climbing six or 8,000 meter peaks, I'm going to be mm-hmm. training for a year, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and working my way up. But it sounds like you, you hit the road running a lot, uh, a lot faster. Than yeah. I, I mean, I went thought. to altitude really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, partly because I don't live with 14,000 fit peaks in my backyard. Right. Uh, that's one thing. <laughs> Uh, you kind of had to go <laughs> bite the bullet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if I, and I, and I knew I was going to go over there anyway. And, um, I didn't, you know, one of the, this is again, all in hindsight now, you know, we don't as human beings until we experience altitude, have the proper respect for altitude. You know, like you often get this, um, sort of bravado between let's say rock climbers and mountaineers where they'll be like, yeah, but it's not really that steep, you know? Right. And you're like, yeah, your thing's gravity. My thing's altitude. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> They're both really crippling. <laughs> I, I don't think I fully realized when I started this, how serious altitude is. I very quickly started to realize um, how serious altitudes, but, but the more I do this, the more respect I have for altitude. And the more I realize that people, that that's probably one of the things that we need to educate people about more, more than anything else. It's not so much just 
getting in the best physical shape of your life. Um, there's, there's a lot of other things going on that you can't prepare for on a mountain or that don't require you to be in the best physical shape of your life. Right. Um, altitude is something that's a second, that's, that's not part of that struggle. Yeah. And I bring it up, uh, not to point and say, you did that too fast. I think it's, yeah. for me, it's a motivating thing to hear your story about how you got into it so quickly, because I think, you know, if people are thinking the way I'm thinking, it's like, well, that's not yeah. something I'd ever want to do because I don't have a year to devote to training to do that. But you're, you've proven that you don't have to devote that no. time. You can step into it. Obviously you didn't go tackle yeah. Everest as your first mountain or anything, but you did some yeah. pretty serious climbing, high altitude climbing early on. And that's good. I think, I think if you have, um, you know, I mean, I, I had a, I had a very sound cardio base, like, like a really long term sound cardio base mm -hmm. from, from other activities. So I think that put me in a good position to, to, um, you know, meet the demands of climbing a 6,000 meter peak, but, you know, peaks like Lobuche East and Island Peak, even Mara Peak, they call them quote unquote trekking peaks. Um, and what, what they all have in common is there really isn't much technical climbing on them at all. So you don't need a lot of climbing skill. Let's say you just need to learn how to walk in crampons. Um, and, and that you can, you know, as long as you're generally coordinated, you can figure that out, um, with some, with, with a day of, of training, you need to <laughs> learn you how your to, sign. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you, if you need to learn how to use fixed lines, cause on certainly on those peaks, they're going to have fixed, fixed lines. And that really just means you have to learn how to work a Jumar or a sender, um, which is a fairly straightforward device. Um, and then, you know, you got to learn about gear. Uh, but there's plenty, there's lots of, there's lots of advice on that out on the internet. And, and that's a learning process too. What keeps you warm, how to function, but you gotta, you're not going to start learning that on, um, you're not going to start learning what you need on 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 meter peaks on 14, True. um, True. thousand foot peaks. You're just not. And in fact, um, I see a lot of people who come from places where they have 14,000 foot peaks in their backyard and they think they can just run up to 14,000 feet in Nepal and be totally cool. But what you don't do when you get to 14,000 feet in the States is go higher <laughs> the next day or the day after. You come back down. In fact, you come back down that day. And, and so, and also what you wear on a 14,000 foot peak is not going to be anything near what you need to wear on 6,000 meters. So there is, there's a point where you kind of got to go to the big boy leagues and, and not to say that 14,000 foot peaks are not big boy leagues. No, having it. just done my first one this year. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you make a good point. It's a, it is a totally different world up there. Yeah. So at some point you have to decide to jump into that. Now, um, I think you should have a generally sound uh, cardio base. I think you should have some strength in your legs. I think for your own confidence and, and, uh, mental strength, um, you probably want to, uh, do some long, really long days with a pack. Um, I mean, nothing's really going to prepare you. You're never going to walk in there and ace that first one. You're going to learn a lot. I learn something every time I do this still, and I expect to keep learning things um, to, 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 to be better at it or to make it better for myself. Um, high altitude climbing is not something that just you go, you nail it, and then you're good at it forever. Um, it's a long-term learning process for sure. Uh, and that's like, and honestly, that's part of the fun of it. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, if you learned it and conquered it all within the first year of doing it, then you're going to be looking for the next fun activity to do. You're going to walk away from that yeah. one thinking, well, it's kind of boring at this point. So it makes sense. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, what about altitude? Uh, we were just talking about, you know, 6,000 meter, 8,000 meter. Um, what is yeah. the difference? Um, how do I ask this? How does it feel? You know, you're, you, you summit totally. a 20,000 yeah. uh, foot peak and then you yeah. summit a 26,000 foot peak. So what does that 6,000 foot difference really feel like? Is it drastic or is it not that big? Um, you, you mean between the 6,000 and 8,000 meter? Exactly. Uh, yes. Yes. It feels, it feels very different. Um, so typically 6,000 meter peaks are, um, first of all, uh, you go for the summit from like a high camp. So you have a base camp, you hang out there, you're climatizing, you go up to a high camp and then you go for it. So just in terms of like length of time out on a mountain, living on a mountain, it's, it's, it's much less on an 8,000 meter peak. You're spending much, much longer, uh, going up and down the mountain, many more days out on the mountain. And often you have at least three, possibly even four camps. Um, you're exhausted before, well before you go for your summit push, um, which is what makes a, a, a mountain like Everest even worse because you're just going that much higher. and It's, it's, it's another extra day. Um, so it feels it feels a lot different when you get to the top of a six thousand meter peak. Assuming you figured out, you know, pacing, which I hadn't figured out the first time. Um, assuming you're like walking at a pace that's that's right for you. Um, you know, you're warm enough, you're eating enough. Then, if you just take your time, uh, then you're gonna get to the top of a six thousand meter peak. You're gonna feel like like um, you know the air's thinner, but you're still getting enough oxygen. You don't mm -hmm. feel like, oh my god, I need to put on an oxygen tank, and that would that would change my life. Um, and, and you feel quite comfortable uh, standing on top of the summit. Uh, you could you could stay there for a long time uh, easily. So when you get to the top of an eight thousand meter peak, I mean, even with oxygen on, you're completely uh, you're often completely exhausted, depending on on the mountain. Um, you don't want to stay there for a long time because you have a long way to go down. If you take your oxygen off. Um, you know, in about a maximum of 20 minutes, you are definitely going to want to put that oxygen back on because you're going to start feeling not good uh, uh, at all. And uh, without oxygen, the highest I've been without oxygen is only 7,600 meters. Um, yeah, I mean, and I remember, I distinctly remember looking over at my friend Mark who had oxygen on and wanting to strangle him because he was <laughs> so happy. And I was not. And I remember thinking, this is how Violetta must have felt when she saw me on Choyu. But um, And I was very cold. That's the other thing people don't realize about oxygen is oxygen keeps you warm. And without oxygen, you get very cold. Yeah, that's higher. a really good point. I, I actually never thought about that. You know, mm -hmm. same with hydration, but I never would have thought about oxygen in that sense. It's the circulation and right. then the oxygen. It helps immensely. In fact, if you are incredibly cold, and we've done this on mountains with people who have just been you know, sitting there freezing, um, you give them a few puffs of oxygen and it changes their life. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful drug and it does, um, put you at much less risk, uh, leaving aside the very serious things like haze and hay, but puts you at much, much less risk for, um, frostbite. Right. Well, and just the, the simple so, fact that it'll pick your spirits up at that point. I mean, many oh, people get up there gosh. and just totally lose their, their desire yeah. to, to move anymore and put themselves in really, really dangerous positions. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. When I was, um, the next, the next, um, big mountain I went to after Choi was, uh, a mountain called Shisha Pongma, which is also in, um, Tibet. And it is, I think the 14th highest it's, it's the, it's the, it's the lowest of the 8,000 meter peaks. And, um, I, uh, had it in my mind that I was going to try it without oxygen, but we were going to bring oxygen. I've since, you know, if I was ever going to go without oxygen, I would just literally go without oxygen as opposed to giving a choice. Because if it's there, I think you will use it ultimately. Really? Yeah. But um, on this particular mountain, normally you don't start on oxygen until you're up at the high camp and going for the summit. I think the high camp is maybe like seven, three, seven, four uh, meters. And uh, that's high. But there's this I mean, head wall you have to Almost 25,000 feet at that point. Oh, yeah. It's quite normal to go to above 7,000 meters and then put your oxygen oxygen on wow uh, that's that's what i would absolutely always do um but on this particular mountain there's sort of this um valley you're in you're in you're in a mountain valley and then you have to climb up a head wall from about seven thousand meters to seven four and um i was in a terrible mood just an absolutely ferocious mood i was being a horrible human being <laughs> and i was with max again <laughs> and um um it was just the two of us again on this mountain and, uh, and a Sherpa who was ahead. And like, we had this, like, I started yelling at him saying that I forget even what I was saying. I was like, if you're not going to be my friend, I don't even want to climb this mountain. It was totally weird. I was in the worst mood of my life. And, um, and he, Max. <laughs> he was like, that's it. I don't know why that Sherpa is carrying oxygen when you should be on it right now. <laughs> and, um, and so we watched them and I was like, no, I'm not. I was like, totally. Are <laughs> I'm not going on oxygen now. You know, how dare you? <laughs> I found it offensive. And uh, we got to the bottom of the head wall and he's like, you are going on oxygen right now. And he put oxygen on me. And um, I had this really funny video because all of a sudden I took off up this head wall at a speed never before seen. <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped midway because I was so happy all of a sudden that I wanted to make a camera, uh, a video to document my current state of bliss and uh yeah and in the video i'm like i was being a complete animal and now i am so happy with the world and everybody is awesome and that that's what oxygen can do for you if you've deteriorated uh, um into a place like that you know it, it will completely turn you around wow that's amazing it makes me wonder if max isn't mixing a little something something in his oxygen <laughs> <laughs> now if you're feeling like normal and when i say normal i mean normal for altitude putting oxygen on doesn't make you suddenly feel awesome um i would say it more stops you from deteriorating the way you would if you didn't put oxygen right, on right. by now you certainly know who bent gate is that's for a great reason bent gate mountaineering has been sponsoring the adventure sports podcast almost from the beginning and we really appreciate that They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. 
Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Well, it sounds like you probably described your worst day on the mountain with the whole snow blindness thing. What was your best time and on which mountain? Oh, my best time on the mountain. I guess, you know, my best time on the mountain would be um, in 2014. I, or sorry, 2012, I did a bunch of, um, I did a bunch of climbs and I ended up going from, I, I climbed Lhotse, which is uh, beside Everest, that I think is the fifth highest mountain. And, uh, you know, that was a climb for me where, I remember why I climbed Lhotse. I climbed Lhotse because I didn't feel ready for Everest. Someone had been saying, you know, you can come to Everest, you'll, you'll do great, yada, yada. And I um, I just had it in my mind that, no, you know, I'd been doing a bunch of other climbing and challenging myself more technically than that. But I still didn't feel like I was ready for I I really thought Everest was like a big a big deal. And so I chose Lhotse, which is quite funny to people who climb 8,000 meter peaks because most people would say that Lhotse is more difficult oh, yeah. than Everest. Um, but I just kind of looked at it from um, an altitude point right, of view at that right. at that point. And um, so I went to do Lhotse and that was sort of the climb for me where I felt like, okay, I've picked up a bunch of technical skills. Like I'd gone off and done some alpine rock courses and started some rock climbing stuff. And then I'd you know started some ice climbing. And so I was starting to feel like I kind of was starting to have a clue. Um, I was, I didn't feel so much like a, a poser anymore, really. Like I actually could, you know, tie some knots and look like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> where, I mean, a lot of people don't learn that, you know, or, or never get to that or, um, you know, just let other people do that and don't right. sort of take the time to learn that. And, but I always had, had I'd come to the conclusion that, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this, I want it to slowly and sh- slowly but surely get better at it and know how to take care of myself. So when I got to Lhotse, I kind of felt like, yes, I can climb that mountain. I, you know, I don't want to climb a mountain that I don't think I can climb this one. I can climb and everything kind of just came off perfectly. And in fact, we had this horrible summit weather day, but uh, it was me and, and another girl. Um, it's great. I end up climbing with girls often, which is, you know, sort of a, a, not a common thing on 8,000 meter peaks. And and Arnold, who was the guide, and um, he was positive we were going to turn around because the weather was absolutely terrible. But we were just so happy and doing so well that we were like, no, let's keep going. And and it was just this kind of raw, raw girl power thing. And, and we got to the top and he's like, I can't believe you guys did that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm so happy to be here because I haven't summited this either. So, but I really can't believe you guys kept going so um i felt like it was the culmination of all the work that i had put in 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 since 2010 through to then and then i went off and so i was really happy on those i just thought it was like this culmination uh moment and everything had just gone right and and we we'd done it right and then i went off to pakistan for the first time and had this wonderful time on broad peak we didn't summit um and that was a low moment for me because it was the first time I like I hadn't by that point I'd kind of I was summiting every 8,000 meter peak that I was climbing right so I kind of thought that I was just going to keep summiting everything that I climbed you know and then I got to Broad Peak and Pakistan and Pakistan is just notorious for shutting people down and Pakistan is this horrible place for weather and and the mountains are tough there absolutely and 
did summit broad peak. And so I was on this low. So I'd been on low say on this high and I was kind of on this, like, man, I was I, like, I remember I was crying when, uh, uh, when I decided that well, we'd all, we all decided we were going down, but I, somebody had said, do you want to stay and, you know, leave your team and come, come with me and we'll go and climb. And I'd said, you know, I can't leave my team, but it was a devastating moment for me thinking, should I stay? Should I go? I can't believe I'm walking away from this mountain. Yeah, it's gotta be tough. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, the first time is tough. It's a, absolutely tough but i walked away from it and got back to scardy which is you know sort of the, the town you go to when you leave the mountains and um, decided i was going to go climb a seven thousand meter peak called spantic because someone else is going there and i said i'm going to come to you then and we went there and that ended up being one of my i think till this day my most memorable high because um there was three of us who ended up climbing in the end and uh the mountain was in incredibly bad shape that year it was just deep snow cornices all this like it, it's not supposed to be a very difficult mountain it's just supposed to be a straightforward like ridge climb um without a lot of danger but it ended up being a really dangerous mountain and we just you know we were falling into crevasses uh falling through cornices um dealing with um uh like post holing for you know hours at a time and um on our summit day we ran into sugar snow and um brad uh characterized it as this superhuman force that overtook grace because she just like commenced into this routine of like okay knee up push snow down take foot push snow down next you know <laughs> sounds exhausting and, like, and it went and he's like and he couldn't believe it he was like i don't even know how she's doing that but i think i was i just come off of my first eight thousand meter no summit right. i think it was the first time I had some very serious summit fever as well. Um, I wanted that summit. I remember wanting it really bad. And in truth, we pushed the the time frame, me and him, for sure. Like I actually made him push it. Um, and and that what really wasn't that's not a smart way to be on a mountain. But we made the summit. It was really we were really really happy and really impressed with ourselves. And and uh, only two other people had made the summit that that year, so it was it was great. And um, and that I think was just a moment again, that whole year to me felt like there was a lot of growth. I, I'd, I'd come a really long way since I'd started and suddenly I was able to climb things that I never would have thought I could climb before. Suddenly I was the person who was um, being the badass that would push through to the summit, you know? Um, and also on, because on, on Spantic things were so dangerous. We were having to do a lot of rope work and, and I was, uh, quite competent at that point in doing all those things. So it just felt like um, a real year of growth for me, 2012. Oh, I'm sure. That so Hispanic in particular. <clears throat> well, I wanted to talk to you about women in high altitude climbing. You don't hear about it a lot. Obviously it exists, but it seems to be a small percentage. Um, but it sounds like you're running into quite a few up there uh, when you get up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It's changing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's changing or not. I guess it's changing certainly on the popular mountains because I've ended up being on some popular mountains lately. And um, so I'm seeing a lot more women around. And I think that that means that eventually there's going to be more women on the on the less popular mountains. We're out there. We've always been out there. It's just that it used to be that there was only one of us on any team, you yeah. know, so it'd be like one woman and a bunch of guys. And, um, you know, it's not problematic. It's, um, it's, it's nice to have more women around. Um, it's, 
I've been lucky to meet Violetta in 2010 and then Mia in 2012. And um, I've had the chance to climb with Violetta, I think, two or three times since then. And um, Mia and I have yet to get back together, but I'm sure we will at some point. Um, You know, it's always, I don't know that it's any harder, right? Like I, I have no problem sharing tents with guys and, and um, versus, versus girls uh, so, sometimes I think uh, I don't like the assumption that, oh, if there's two girls on a team, let's let's put them together or they're going to be best buddies. Kind of thing. <laughs> I always think that's quite funny. Like, it's not always the case for estrogen? either sex. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there are sort of funny things like that that come up, but it, it's always nicer to have female uh, members around because you end up, you know, getting a toilet for the girls because the boys are just too messy in theirs. And uh yeah, so it's it's uh, there's some bonuses, but you know what, what I really like about being a woman in in this sport is, I think altitude is just the greatest equalizer on earth. Um, it you know I you know I remember this moment on Broad Peak. There's this really big guy from uh, Iceland. I mean, he was huge. I'm like five foot two. I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm I'm a small person, at least in size, not in person personality but um and this guy was easily over six feet and uh, big long legs and uh yeah, i just came climbing up and passed him and i just kept going and i remember from behind me he like stopped and he was like i don't get it your legs are like this long and my legs are like this long like how are you doing that? <laughs> watch me buddy <laughs> that's awesome but um it's it, it's a real it, it's a forum where um where you know, sort of human beings exist. It's not really, it's not the sex kind of disappears um, to a great extent other than maybe I would say load carrying. Right. Cause we're just, um, I do find like, I've, you know, I've definitely gotten way stronger and I'm, I'm good at carrying my own load. I'm not very good at taking the same load as some guy that's like six foot three and, you know, 200 pounds. Um, it, it definitely has a different, impact on me and on him when we put on heavy packs so well you just learned to pack a little bit lighter <laughs> buy, oh, well, buy better i mean of course right? yeah i i buy really light equipment <laughs> yeah. and people sometimes will like pick up my pack and they'll be like oh my god like mine's so much heavier and i'm like yeah but i have a five foot sleeping bag and you have a six foot sleeping bag right. and all my clothes are way smaller and my boots are smaller and and all of that so i do make an effort to try to keep my equipment as light as possible so that in terms of the other equipment that I have to carry, um, you know, it's at least I'm starting from, from a lighter point, but you know, also there's a lot of guys who, who will be like, no, you don't have to carry an equal pack to me. You, you've got to carry what's reasonable for your size and what's reasonable for my size is more. So, you know, I'm going to take more. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all about learning how to pack. Yeah. So yeah. I normally have, I was going to have you, uh, you know, have some words of encouragement for other women to get out there and, and try high altitude climbing. But I think you kind of did it already and all that. Is there anything you wanted to add to that? Oh, I mean, I, I hope, I hope so. Um, I wouldn't, you know, sometimes women are, you know, when guys stand around, when, when, when a guy stands around a group of guys and says, yeah, I'm going to go out like and do a solo hike, uh, on, on a 14 or whatever, you know, a, a lot of time their buddies will be like, yeah, right on rad. Sounds great. When a girl stands around and tells her girlfriends, I'm going to go out and 
do a solo hike on 14 they're gonna be like oh my god that's scary you're gonna be alone are you gonna be okay and um i just i think that it's important for for women to kind of take ownership over their own independence and Mm -hmm. not be afraid to go out um on their own you know the, the the wilds and the trails and all that are you know are generally quite safe the things that you worry about in your head um are are, are not um things that you should should spend too much time worrying about um you can be safe you can stay in contact with, with the outside world um but there's no reason you can't get out there and do the same things as the guys and you know i i used to be afraid of hiking on my own i i really did and I realized I was really stupid. Um, so just start with like a simple, you know, a simple hike that's maybe like an hour and a half long um, and do it on your own when without, you know, without your girlfriends or without your boyfriend and um, just kind of take back your independence and it'll feel really great. Um, I, I think more women need need to do that. And I think more women also need to be supportive of other women doing that as opposed to kind of transmitting those those very feminine ideas of, oh, you're going to be alone. Oh, and what if somebody hurts you? Kind of. No, I agree. And that's why I like to ask it because, you know, one news story can ruin a million mindsets when it comes to something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you hear the news story and you think, okay, you know, surely that's going to happen to me. But, you yeah. know, if you ever look at statistics on stuff like that, you know, you can't let that limit you. You have to get out there yeah. and live your own life and, and have the, uh, you know, the, the, the willingness to to blow all that to the side and enjoy yourself mm-hmm. and and start small and that'll probably make you more comfortable and when it comes to climbing and mountaineering um don't think that, like men have some kind of innate ownership over it um most of them have no clue what they're doing in the beginning too <laughs> probably um, still don't have a clue even while right? they're doing it <laughs> um yeah and 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 you know women are really good at um allowing themselves to be bad in the beginning and learn and get Mm -hmm. better Um, often. And this is not true across the board, but there's a lot of women who just don't have a lot of ego associated with performing well in the outdoors. And that's a wonderful thing because the first thing you need to do when you do this is to learn a lot of stuff and don't be ashamed of like, Oh, I need somebody to teach me, find somebody to teach you and um, just be a really good learner and, and, and you will get better at it. And then eventually you're going to find that, you know, more than the guys and yeah, they'll be showing off and trying to look cool. But at the end of the day, you'll know more of how to do it and, and be better. Right. Right. Well, when it comes to guides, what about um, female guide groups have, have you run into that or maybe that's what you need to, to be yourself? Have I ever had a, f- yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's far too late for me to become a certified mountain guide. I also think that, um, you know, for people that are interested in guiding, that's a very specific career choice. You, you do need to love climbing, but if climbing is all that you love, then you probably shouldn't become yeah, a guide. You need to love teaching yep. people. Yeah, um, and point. I'm maybe, I don't know if I, I have the patience for teaching people that really want to learn. Um, I don't have the patience for teaching people that just want somebody else to do everything for them because, you know, high altitude mountains are not a place where that can happen. Um, yeah, and you're going to get all kinds up there. You're not going to get the, the cherry pick uh, one you do. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely do. In terms of female guides, have I had female guides? I'm just thinking, um, gosh, you know, I've never had a female guide. Uh, I'm not against having a female guide. I've seen female guides in in, uh, action on the mountain. There's not a lot of them, though. I'll say that. Um, Maybe there's not enough of us trying. Um, I suspect part of it is also that 
like any profession, I mean, this, this happens in law. If you decide you want to have kids and a family being out and running around the world, you know, for months at a time, isn't really conducive to that as, as, you know, as much as it can be for, for, for men, you know, men manage to make it work. Um, It's a whole other level of challenge for, for women to do that. Uh, I'm sure part of it also is, you know, the, the, there's a bit of a competitive culture sometimes within, you know, all types of climbing and that doesn't always resonate well with women. So I think they just kind of step to the back and say, okay, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, But I think women in the mountain can be an incredibly um, uh, wonderful addition to it. Just, you know, their way of, of dealing their, their interaction on a, on a human level with people who are going through tough times can actually be quite useful. Um, talking people through things and women are a great resource for anybody, man or women to feel weak around and express weakness around. And one of the hardest things on a mountain, um, for a lot of men and even some women is being honest about how they're feeling and showing weakness. Right. Um, whereas if you have a female guide, they can often be better. And I've met plenty of male guides who are great at this too, but it is a certain talent as a guide to get people to level with you and tell you the truth about how they're feeling. Not because you're going to kick them off the mountain, but so that you can manage what's going yeah, on. You can help them help themselves at that point. Totally. And, and, uh, I think women certainly have on a, um, uh, uh, maybe a better level of communication on an emotional level often that could be quite useful, uh, certainly at high altitude. Now they're not going to be the person who's going to, you know, a lot of people will be like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want a female guy. She can't like pick me up and throw me over her shoulder if I'm in trouble. And it's like, well, none of them can. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you're expecting out of this whole thing, you might want to go into a different hobby. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're going to need at least like four really strong guys for that. So no, it's, um, I, I hope we see more. Uh, I don't know if we will, but I think people should really remain open to it because women can be incredibly good teachers, incredibly patient. And, and even for men, I think a great, uh, a great example to learn from. And yeah, I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah, I can't agree, agree anymore. Well, if you guys want a little bit of inspiration, um, go check out Grace's Facebook page and her Instagram page. There are some amazing photos and write-ups of her uh, her outings on these mountains. You can find her at Mountain Climb Grace at both uh, social media outlets. And check it out. Hit up Grace if you're thinking about getting into high-altitude climbing. And uh, I'm sure she'll be happy to answer a few of your questions and maybe give you that little push to the edge that you need. So. Grace, it was awesome talking to you. We've blown through an hour easily. Um, I really appreciate your time coming on. Oh, no, yeah. we've, we've That went by really fast. It so. did. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm always happy for anybody who wants just advice or encouragement. Just, you know, message me or comment on my pictures. I, I love to uh, – I love – if I could be responsible for just one person going on their first mountain climb, I, I would be so honored. Cool. Cool. Right on. Well, that's cool. I hope, uh, I hope somebody hits you up and, uh, and is inspired to get out there themselves. So, all right, Grace. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to be on the show and hopefully you've inspired some people to get out there and try some things. Hope so. All right. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show, or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us, please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is 
you can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Uh, again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening. And y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget, if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout.